Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of the How's My Hand Path podcast. As always, I'm Shaheen Nakjavani, your host. Uh, this week on the show, we got one of my good buddies, Preston Combs, on. Preston just recently joined our Course Kings crew uh, as one of the specialists. Um, Preston does a lot of putting work, so this is going to be an interesting episode because I haven't had anyone that talks putting yet onto the pod. Um, you know, Preston pays attention to very specific details and matchups like I do with the full swing, but in regards to putting. So he breaks down a bunch of misconceptions for you guys and, uh, you know, gives you a lot of nuggets to think about. So I hope you guys enjoy this one. All right. Preston, what's going on, buddy? How's the weather out in the West? I would imagine it's much warmer than the snow we're looking at outside right now. Oh, no, it's freezing here. It's about 54 right now, so it's a <laughs> chilly day for us out in Santa Barbara. I love it. That's, uh, that's a nice little shot to all the Northeasterners that are freezing cold. Uh, may- yeah, maybe. You know, I remember when I moved out here for one of the first couple of months, it was still, it was still early in the year. It was probably January or February, and was complaining about the weather and my dad overnight uh, living back in New Jersey called me at six o'clock in the morning east coast times so it's three o'clock in the morning my phone's ringing and he's asking if I want to come help on dig out the car from the snow that they had just gotten so I think learned my lesson pretty quickly to not complain about the uh, chilly weather out here. That's amazing we uh, we actually had a pretty mild winter here in Montreal and it only just started snowing like intensely as of like a couple weeks ago so even us we've been pretty fortunate so far. Given, given, you know the, history, given the history of Montreal. Uh, exactly, yeah. You know what? I'm just happy I don't have to carry a shovel around with me. Yeah, I have two in my car, so I, know, I, <laughs> I unfortunately know what that feels like. Well, you've got an excuse to come to Santa Barbara now. Yeah, exactly. All right, dude. So um, I guess for those who don't know, just introduce yourself a little bit in terms of your, uh, your background. Because I know that, you know, based on social media, you obviously do a fuck ton of putting stuff, but I would like to hear just how you got into the golf world as a whole. Boy, this whole journey started when I was six months old with a spatula and a plastic ball and I was playing in the house with mom and it slowly started resembling a golf swing and that turned into plastic clubs and real clubs and junior golf and the journey kind of grew from there. But uh, ultimately the reason for getting into coaching, I had an okay junior career and I played a little bit in college, but really it was the frustrating part for me that I didn't get the information I needed along the way. You know, my coaches and coaches I had access to in high school had some information, but not enough of what I needed to have my fair shake at playing as a professional. And not to say that I would have made it to any high level or anything like that, but I think there's a certain obligation as a coach to provide the people in front of you with the best information available. And that wasn't the case for me throughout high school and uh, college until I met Mario Bevilacqua and he took me under his wing on the coaching side of things. Uh, really, eternally grateful for our friendship because none of this happens without him. And that's given me the opportunity to learn a little bit more about the right way to approach things. You know, it wasn't just about the information, although that's a big part of what we do, but about handling people and how different that is for how different it is when you create that relationship with somebody that transcends anything that you're doing on the golf course or on the putting green. I think that's probably the the biggest lesson for me over the years. So you would say that getting to know someone on a more personal level and communicating with them is far, is probably one of the most important assets you can have as a coach. Um, Understanding them and adapting to 
their personality and their needs because you're not just you're not just there to be a textbook of information it's going to be about how am I how am I positioning the information you know do you drip feed information you know when to when to hit hard and hit back if somebody's giving you a hard time I think that's something that you can't replace you can't learn that in a textbook you learn that over time but I feel like on the, in the studio that's been one of my biggest strengths for when people come in I like it, dude. I think that's the number one comment I get from even my own students is like, you know, don't be afraid to be a hard ass with me because sometimes, you know, at the end of the day, they're paying you for your honesty. So you can't really sugarcoat things. If you need to say something that sometimes can be critical, you know, even if it comes across in a negative way, like it's, it might be important for the player's benefit, like long-term. Well, well, perspective, right? I mean, sometimes we get so wrapped up in our own world, our own view of how things are going that it's tough to tough to see things from a different angle uh, i was at a conference down in florida once and the presenter was effectively starting off a team building exercise and he asked so when you're driving how do you know if your tail lights out and then the whole room exclaims oh somebody told you and you need a team and you need help from other people and i'm the smart ass sitting in the front that goes mm, no i don't think you need anybody else you put a brick on the brake pedal you get out and you go look and he didn't take too kindly to that, but I kind of think there's some value there for saying, hey, I get my own viewpoint from the driver's seat here. What happens if I step out of that role for a little bit and take a look at otherwise the same situation, the vehicle I'm in from a 360 degree perspective, take a walk around it and assess it from a couple of different angles and maybe see something that you otherwise couldn't see from just locked down in the driver's seat. It's, all, it's also almost like this idea of, you know, you can't always rely on other people, right? Like everybody's shouting that someone else is telling you that your brake lights pulled out. It's like, okay, well, why don't you just find a new solution yourself? That's like self-correction where it's like, hey, I, I just got out of the car. I'm looking at it. I see it. I didn't need someone to, I didn't have to wait on hand and foot for someone to tell me what I'm doing wrong. And I almost think like we see that a lot with the golf swing, right? Like somebody gets better on the driving range, can't take it to the course and like they can't problem solve. It's like, well, problem solving is a huge part of the game. We're not there with you on the golf course. You know, being able to have a different perspective of how to look at what's going wrong is hugely important for every player, I think. Sure. I mean, the biggest hurdle I face is when someone misses a putt, they turn around and look at me and I'm ready to hold up a mirror and say, look back at yourself and tell me what happened. You know, was this a read, speed or direction error? You know, if those are our putting priorities and the things that kind of shape our decision making then I need to be able to identify after the first five holes if nothing's going in, okay, what's missing here? And I guess people that are so wrapped up in the stroke side of things, which I guess you're allowed to be wrapped up in the mechanics of directions and issue, but not such a deep dive down the rabbit hole that you don't have something practical that you can work with and figure out. I like it, dude. So let's talk about putting a bit because obviously that's what you're known for. So I wanted to ask, first of all, how did you – how did you make the transition from full swing to, to putting Do, is like the majority of your lessons at this point, all putting what's the, what's the breakdown, let's say of what percentages you're giving of lessons that are full swing now these days. Gosh, the, the vast, the vast majority of what I do is putting. I, I might quietly do some full swing for a couple of clients here and there, but the venture into putting started back in end of 2011 when I attended an eight point school down in Florida. I was always a good putter because growing up at a public course, there's enough money for a bucket of balls and you can chip and putt for free the rest of the day. And after that, it was, all right, I was always good at that. But then I always had that curiosity of why am I better at this than other people that I play short game or putting competitions with? And learning aim point when it was still the aim chart back in 2011 was 
huge for me. It was eye, it was eye opening as a bit of a math nerd. It was fun to implement into my own golf game, and that became where to hit the putt. And then I added Sam Putt Lab, and that was where to hit the putt more often, or at least it was supposed to be anyway. I could see what the putter did and started realizing pretty quickly I needed some information about how the body worked and how the putter was moving. And that led me to David Orr and the Flat Stick Academy uh, conference down there. He's been a tremendous friend and mentor over the years for me. A lot of the understanding and perspective that I have, uh, I owe a lot to David. And, but also opportunity that he's provided for me to create a, create a career out of the putting coaching side of things. It was the last piece of the puzzle to, and the encouragement to keep looking, keep asking questions. And every time you do research, you probably find, find more questions than you do answers when you start looking uh, below the flight deck. So for those who don't know, then can you give us a simplified explanation for the listeners of what Aimpoint is? Yeah, Aimpoint's a green reading system. Uh, oftentimes when you're reading greens, you're generally looking at what a putt does, but that leaves you open to optical illusions or the essential idea that you could be seeing the same slope on three different golf courses. And if they are three different green speeds, you will need to play a different amount of break. And that leaves people guessing, oftentimes confused, hugely valuable tool for players that travel a fair amount too because they're going to need to adapt to changing, changing conditions. You know, they'll play around the golf in the Northeast on Stimp 11 and a half, and then head down to South Carolina on some grainy Bermuda, maybe a nine and a half or a 10. You can look at the same thing and you'll get a very different end result. And having a baseline strategy for ultimately the very first thing you do when you step onto a green, which is read it, I think there's tremendous value in that. So what would be your breakdown, let's say, of like the most important things when it comes to putting? What do you prioritize with your students at this moment? Well, when you stop, when you stop and take a look at it from a 30,000 foot view, three things make the ball go in. The read, speed, and direction. I would say those are the three primary skills. But the most important skill that I think I've developed and started encouraging my players to embrace is the fourth one is the dynamic blend. I need some amount of all three of those in a given situation to get the ball to go in. So for example, a straight uphill five footer, my speed probably isn't a major priority. The reads probably a piece of it, but if something's relatively flat, you can stand there and feel that out. And then ultimately it's direction. So I need maybe a little more emphasis on managing the face on that given putt versus a 15 footer across a large slope on a fast green. There's a bigger emphasis on my read and speed components. So you are, at the end of the day, prioritizing different elements depending on what the putt is in front of you in the context. Absolutely. And ultimately, you still need all three of those things, the read, speed, and direction for the putt to go in. But there might be, from the player perspective, an awareness that one of these might be a little more important than the other. But this idea that you're going to practice those skills in isolation, you know, I'm going to go work on my speed drills, and I'm going to go practice feeling my slope for green reading, and then I'm going to hit putts on my chalk line, and then I'm good to go. You haven't really accomplished the ultimate goal because every putt you hit on the golf course is different. And that's the, I think that's the challenge people run into. They say my speed's poor. I'm going to go do my speed drills. And there's no, there's no relationship for, and there's no transference out to the golf course in that element. I like that because we apply a lot of that in the full swing too, right? Like you can work on one specific part of the full swing, 
and you can isolate that all day. But then if you can't put that into all the other components of what's moving and what's going on, you know, you're not going to hit it well. I see all these people sometimes right. like working on wrist angles or working on whatever. It could be like your alignment. It's like, okay, but if that doesn't work with your golf swing, like it's not happening. Yeah, exactly. I think it's this idea that we're looking at a single piece of the puzzle or, you know, when you're looking at Sam Putlab data, I mean, I've had, you know, I've spent a lot of time pouring over reports and trying to figure out how and why stuff works and what the relationship is between different components. And, you know, if you get wrapped up in that single moment in time, that face at impact number, you know, you might be missing the larger scope of the scenario, right? You know, it's where's that face coming from? Where did it start? Where's it going? And how quickly is it getting to that point of impact, right? I mean, most players, there's some amount of face rotation. Is it a lot? Is it too, too much? Not enough? That's, a, that's, our, that's our first nugget, I think, right there. We get so wrapped up in just that one number that, because uh, everybody always talks about face and impact being the king. And they said, okay, well, what determines that? What influences it? I like that. So just to give a little explanation for those who are listening who are maybe not putting geeks, uh, Sam Putlab is basically a, a, a tool, a software that you can use uh, to analyze all of your movement pattern with the putter and your impact dynamics. So if you're yeah. somebody who is struggling with putting, uh, obviously Preston uses this, I would imagine, with a large majority of your students. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot to be said for the, the data that's collected through this, uh, the 3D ultrasound software. It's the most accurate technology out there for determining how the putter's moving throughout the stroke and the 3D putt software that they've implemented so that you don't have to look at just raw data and numbers, but to be able to create a full 360 degree viewing picture of individual strokes for the player and highlight different components of the stroke. That's been hugely beneficial because now I can have anybody from a 20 handicap all the way up to a tour player and still send a clear and succinct message about what the putter's doing during the stroke. I like that, dude. So I want to get into a little bit of a MythBuster segment because obviously we hear for certainly TV analysts making some, you know, blatant, I guess, statements on the internet that are very blank and don't have much fact behind it. Um, so I would love oh, to, yeah. I would love to hear your take because I'm sure you're you have some strong opinions about that too, as someone who obviously knows putting very well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Where do we want to start? Let's start with the green reading since that's the first thing you do when you get on the green, guys. The balls do not break towards the ocean and away from the mountains. Just <laughs> I had a feeling, had a feeling you were going there. It's, it's, we got we got to start with the low-hanging fruit, right? I mean, I've got my green out here, and uh, I'm in very close proximity to the ocean. I can see the mountains from my putting green. They're about three miles apart, and guess what? The ball breaks towards the mountains. Shocking, right? So uh, golf ball's pretty smart, but it, uh, it just knows the surface it's rolling across. It doesn't have any GPS system telling it where the ocean is. I remember, I remember that um, Jeff Pierce had some arguments with some people on Twitter like six months ago or something about exactly that concept where they're like, well, gravity's pulling it towards the ocean or towards the mountain or away from the mountain or whatever. And Jeff's like, well, how come that's not being the case when the ball's in the air? It should be no different when it's rolling on a surface. Like, I just can't understand how that makes any sense. Right. And, and it doesn't. You know, Mark Sweeney actually ran the, uh, ran the reports on the gravitational pull. And actually, the gravitational pull near the ocean is less than it is closer to mountain ranges. Go figure that one, right? So gravity's got less <laughs> on the golf ball by the ocean. Boy, talk about rocking everybody's world, right? So, <laughs> I mean, so that's probably why we 
have a system to figure out how much the ground's tilted. I mean, uh, I think uh, one of the videos I just did, it might be up on Force Kings already, the slope, feeling slope. I mean, we got to start there, right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about where the ball is going between that and the hole, right? It doesn't really matter what everything is happening around it. Yeah, your golf ball is very smart and it's going to do exactly what the ground and the other influencers tell it to do, like a stimp and uh, angle to the slope, things like that. I love it, dude. All right, here's another one for you then. How about um, when it comes to the stroke, let's talk like some technical misbusters. Obviously, you hear these like, you know, use your bigger muscles and rock the shoulders and don't touch your wrists and things of that nature. What, um, what is like the worst information you hear from a player who comes to you who's like, yeah, I was told to do this at some point and obviously it's not working? Oh boy, you had like three there just in one <laughs> sentence. Let's yeah, I had, a feel, I had a feeling. <laughs> um, let's see, rock your shoulders. I think I put up a public service announcement on Twitter recently. For all intents and purposes, the shoulder is a joint and it doesn't move anything. The muscles around it move stuff. So your lats, your your uh, pecs, your deltoids, you know, all that stuff around there is moving it. But people get so wrapped up in rock your shoulders that – I end up with tons of players that have a lot of side tilt, the head dips towards the target in the backswing and away from the target in the follow through, almost like a counterweight relative to the putter. And that's always been the person that's been told rock your shoulders instead of uh, properly managing how the torso actually turns during the stroke. You know, it's, we're set up in some kind of forward bend, so I can't just rock side to side. So let's get rid of that one and start figuring out better ways to generate our speed and move the putter. Uh, the wrist angles one, you know, everything should be, everything should be super locked in and quiet. Oh, my favorite. Somebody posted an Instagram story about less moving parts. That couldn't be further from the truth. Cause if I wanted less moving parts, I would just hold on to the club, stand perfectly still and just wiggle my wrist back and forth to move right. the putter. That's, that's less moving parts. And At the end of the day. Yeah. If you, if you quantify it, that is the least amount of moving parts, right? It's just the wrist going back and through without the body doing anything. Yeah, exa exactly. And I think, you know, we see good putting strokes and they say, wow, that looks like nothing's moving. It's like, guys, it's moving in the proper order, the proper sequence. You know, the things have a, the pieces have a good relationship for anybody that says, oh, that stroke looks good. I guarantee you that the putter head, the butt of grip and the elbows and the torso aren't moving at the exact same speed, but they might be moving at the same rate though. Right. Yeah. You know, kind of consider like a, kind of consider a marching band. You know, you get the guys on the marching in a straight line. Everybody's walking at the same ratio. And then if the line needs to turn, the guys on the inside start taking smaller steps. And then the guys on the outside take the same length step and the line starts turning. And that's effectively what you have going on to a degree in the putting stroke, right? I've got, you know, the butt of club traveling back and forth, but the head's traveling a longer distance. So it can't be moving at the same speed. I love it, dude. So when a, when a good player comes to you, have you started to notice patterns in like certain things that they struggle with more often than not, technically speaking? Is there like always like a good putter tends to have this tendency come in every now and again? <sighs> Let's see. The answer could be no, by the way. Obviously, you're the specialist, so I would love to hear your opinion on that. I'm going to say, I'm going to say no, and here's why. Everybody has such a different pattern for how they create their speed and how they move the putter back and forth, that it's tough to pinpoint anything about a commonality other than a generalization. You know, generally speaking, good putters have good movement dynamics. 
you know, they don't have any aggressive acceleration profiles. Uh, another myth, uh, accelerate the putter head. Please get rid of that. That's not what's happening. We'll probably get back to that later. <laughs> yeah, I have a, I have a follow-up uh, question to that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think the, I, I think, uh, man, that's, you know, generally speaking, the dynamics are good. The face rotation is very stable, very predictable, uh, falls within that consistent window that we'd be hoping to open the gap from a player that launches the putt online. Uh, they manage the face well, not just in the horizontal plane, but the vertical plane also. You know, the delivered loft is predictable and effective. Uh, outside of that, they're skillful with the tool. You know, they know how far that club is going to go when they hit it. And we know how far seven iron goes. We know how far three-quarter seven iron goes. And then you ask somebody how far putter goes. A lot of blank stares, and you know, it's a club in the golf bag, right? Yeah, I have 14 should... clubs, and I have do dozens and dozens of shots I could hit with the different tools and using them differently. But then I get to putter, and it seems like we've gone the opposite direction, we've kind of gone with this narrow minded view of it's supposed to work just one way, but there's a lot of different, a lot of different ways to use the tool based on the situation. And the best putters, they're ultimately skillful with that. I like it, dude. So the follow-up question I had for the acceleration was, um, at least in my experience of when I do give putting lessons, is anybody who has a lot of acceleration, it's like this super short backstroke with a ton of length in the follow-through, super long, super fast, and it's like they can't control their speed at all. Is that what you come across too? Oh, yeah, 100%. And I think it's just part of my job as a coach is to start sharing quality information and sometimes quality information need, requires a bit more thought and understanding. You might not pick up the idea of lengthening the backstroke and in a negative acceleration profile as you approach the golf ball in one session. It might take you a couple of times to kind of look at and think about what we talked about in order for this, this idea that, wow, I don't need to be mashing the putter through the hitting area in order to get the ball to the target. I need to a certain amount of length of backswing in order to create enough time to generate the proper amount of speed so I can start managing how fast the putter head's traveling when it strikes the golf ball and consequently where the golf ball's stopping. Nice. So here's a question for you that I'm almost 100% certain I know the answer to, but I think the listeners, it might surprise a few of them. Do you need to have a perfect putting stroke to hold putts? No, absolutely not. In fact, I'm going to take as much wiggle room as I can get as far as I'm, I want to take as much wiggle room as I can get as far as what the tolerances are, right? I mean, putting is hard. And I think we tend to get six feet from the cup and assume that, you know, this should go in because I'm in close proximity to the hole and the tour data is 60% from six feet and 50% from eight feet. And I'm sure there's a listener out there that probably just went, wait, say that again. Because <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, it's a part that's skipped. You know, we get nearby the cup, we assume the ball should go in. You know, when we forget that our job from 20 feet is to just two putt and make sure you don't step on a landmine and zing it six feet by and miss the comebacker. And so I think when we get in those situations, there's a lack of perspective and mismanaged expectations. You know, it's, it's challenging a lot of people's core beliefs when they come into the studio that, you know, they think things are supposed to work a certain way that I can get a putter fitting and solve all my stroke issues when ultimately it's a movement pattern issue and the person needs to change. You know, it's things like that that just go one right behind the other that, you know, 
I challenged them too. So as much as it's a challenge for me to take a look at a brand new puzzle or Rubik's cube every time somebody walks in and start putting the picture together so it looks nice, it doesn't look like chaos, then you know it's the same thing for the player as well. It's that you know they get challenged, they find out, wow, I didn't know any of this stuff, and now I need to digest it, implement it. And change doesn't happen overnight. They're, you know, if we're looking for a perfect stroke, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. I'm just looking for where, where are the margins that I can perform within. So let's talk about expectation management then, because obviously that has a lot to do with the mental psyche too. Like not just making the putt or not making it, but also just the understanding of your percentages. So can you break down a few percentages of like um, the amount of times? I guess the answer obviously is from eight feet, people on tour make it 50% of the time, right? Half. Yep, that, that's a good, that's a good safe number to work with. Okay, and uh, the drop-off tends to get really quick, right? In terms of their likeliness of holding it. So, like a ten feet, what is it? Like one third, about? Uh, let's see, ten, ten feet, forty percent, and then fifteen feet down to about twenty-five, and then twenty feet, ten, eleven percent of the putt. Right. Going. So, like, you have a twenty-foot putt after hitting, let's say, a, an average wedge on the green. Like, your chance of holding that is so small. At like the frustration of not making the putt just because you had a birdie look, like people have to get rid of that concept from their mind. How much emphasis do you put on as a coach on the on the mental side of putting? Huge amount, because if you have an expectation level that's unreasonable, then you're going to continue to beat yourself up over the progress or lack thereof in your in your own mind, because you're looking for, you know, you're looking for a certain outcome when in reality you've done everything in your control over this 20 foot putt, you know, you've read the green. Well, you've managed your speed. Well, you've managed your direction and it didn't go in because there's a bunch of stuff happening. That's beyond your control, whether it be grain, ball marks, picks, you know, conditions, pick something that might happen in that 20 foot window that might not make the ball go in. And it's like, okay, great. Happens. I did. I did what I was supposed to do. Next hole. I like it, dude. I mean, at the end of the day, like the best, the best players in the world are taking more than two attempts to get the ball in the hole from 10 feet. So if you're somebody who misses a 10 footer, like take it easy a little bit and understand that your odds of making it were actually less than 50, 50 to begin with. Right. And, but in the next step beyond that now is not to always wave the white flag when you miss a putt from 10 to 20 or any putt for that matter. It's about taking the time to become involved in the process and understand what I mentioned earlier about the dynamic blend and how the read speed and direction work together to see that 10 foot putt that goes, you know, three feet by and this is just on the high side to not identify that as a stroke issue, but to uh, uh, identify that as a speed issue, because that's probably a faster delivery speed than we would have been hoping for. And with a little less speed, the ball probably breaks more and goes in. But if you start barking up the wrong tree, because you've misread it and you see the putt miss low and you start working on a supposed push pattern in your stroke, then I think you start running into some issues there. I like it. So at the end of the day, it's, I mean, it comes back to what you said from the beginning, which is like being able to self self analyze, I guess, like what was the reason behind the miss putt? Was it because you hit it too hard? Was it because it was a stroke issue? And I would imagine more often than not, it's not actually a stroke issue, especially for your guys that are like, probably really good putting in terms of the repeatability of their pattern. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, sometimes it is. I mean, we're going to get up. I mean, why does anybody miss a, you know, hook a tee shot into the rough, right? Sometimes we just miss, you know, yeah. you're going to make less than desirable strokes where it doesn't launch in the direction you're looking for. So it happens, but properly responding to it, I guess, is the, is, I guess, is the biggest hurdle for people. Uh, one app that I'm using with, uh, from my friend, uh, Cedric out in France called Spider Putt has given me the opportunity to, give a tool for all my students to be able to input not just their strokes gain, you know, the starting distance from the hole and the number of putts they took and just get this metric spit back out at them, but they can map out the length of each putt, the slope of each putt, whether or not it was a read, a speed, or a direction error. And then they can start assessing, hey, how many good strokes did I actually make today? And so they can, again, pull themselves out of the driver's seat and take a good external view of their performance they can look and see, wow, 80, 88% of the strokes I made were good today. But then I start looking and I had, you know, X number of putts go past the hole by three or four feet. And then a couple that came up short by three or four feet. Maybe there's a speed issue here, not necessarily a stroke issue. I like properly it, dude. Identifying, yeah, they got to properly identify what happens. And I get the opportunity as a coach to drop in and look at that data. So instead of just getting a, the strokes gain number at the end of the day, you know, there's nothing worse than I get a text from somebody. Yeah, it was minus 2.4 stroke gain today. And they, and I go, okay, that tells me almost nothing because you could put like tour average for 16 holes and then just whiff on a couple of uh, two short putts from four feet and three feet. And they might be tough putts from three and four feet. You know, they could have a lot of tilt to them or they could be on a, across a big slope. And there's your minus two and a half and it wasn't hard to do or you had a bad ball striking day and you just two putted yourself to death from 15 to 30 feet all day. It happens. For sure. I mean, at the end of the day, being able to quantify, I guess every putt individually makes it just as important as seeing like the bulk sum number at the end of the round. Right. Or it's arguably more important. Sure. Obviously. sure. I mean, the, uh, I had a, I put up a blog post some time back about a player where I showed the whole by whole strokes game. And the player misses a shortcut on 16 from five feet and 17 from four feet and wrote this narrative about how the player went to the practice screen, pissed off to work on their stroke because they missed a couple of shortcuts coming down the stretch versus a, a similar round. And I didn't actually change anything about the numbers, but I changed where the misses occurred. And then, the, so the missed five-footer came on three and the missed four-footer came on 11, but then the player had a stretch of nice putts on 16, 17, and 18 and wrote a narrative about how thrilled the player was about their putting. They felt like they made a couple of clutch putts down the stretch. And ultimately, the short game number for both of those rounds was the same. It was plus 0.39. Right. So you basically changed up the narrative of when the missed putts took place to give them a different point of view of how the round actually was on the greens. Sure, absolutely, and you, you know if you don't know if you don't know the total, if you get very wrapped up in the emotional component of putting, you can start going down the wrong road, and it gets gets a little ugly. All right, dude. So then, I mean, I, I love hearing all this because obviously you're doing it quite differently than a lot of people that I see. So I wanted to ask, what does separate you from the mainstream putting coaches right now? Like, what what do you prioritize that you feel is your strength over some of the other guys who are working with uh, with people on their putting? creating that complete understanding of how and why things are happening. Most people miss a putt. They don't know why. 
they just see an end result and then start trying to go fix things. Creating a solid found, creating and creating concepts and stability for how they operate, developing awareness, and then pursuing ownership of what they do. That's what's different. This isn't uh, take an online lesson with me. I'm going to fix your stroke, make it look good, and we go from there. No, I'm going to take that deeper dive when somebody's working with me online and try to assess it best I can in a remote session which of these areas actually need the most work. Yes, somebody, how's their what do they like about their putting? And usually they're coming to me with nothing's good and they stop and ask and the, kind of give some pulse for thought, right? Like, what do I actually like about what I do on the putting green? And some players, it's, they're so far gone. The answer is absolutely nothing. I'm a clean slate, which I think is the most fun for me because I get to jump in there and think with what I need to. Or maybe I learn something about the player. I find out their skill set and they go, you know, I really like that I stop the ball near the cup every time. I don't pre-putt a whole bunch. I just need to buy another putt from 10 to 15 feet every round. It's funny because the first thing you said in that whole answer was what I put so much emphasis on for full swings too, and I think it goes hand in hand, which is the idea of you have to not only know what you need to do to improve, you have to know why you miss the way you miss. You have to know what is taking place. Look at the entire picture from A to Z, as opposed to just saying the ball starting left and I can't figure out why, whether that's on the green or in, on the course, right? And like being exactly. able to break it all down to the point where there's almost like really no doubt that can possibly seek through their mind, it's so much easier for a player to make a commitment and kind of stick to it. And I noticed that a lot with the online lessons too. Like when I first started giving online lessons five or six years ago, it was kind of a lot more brief explanations, a lot more like you should work on this because it'll make you better. And I noticed that like the – the improvement rate of players gets so much faster once you break down everything for them. It'll take you an extra five minutes. It'll get them better in weeks in advance. You know, it's like there's this huge gain to be made there. So uh, being able to break down the concepts for them and, and the entire overall bigger picture is huge. I, I love that answer, honestly. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the idea that we do stuff. So one way for full swing and probably, and maybe even short game too, not that I do a ton of short game coaching, but we, we have a certain approach, a certain tactic. And then it seems like the, the story and the approach to making progress flips for putting and it's truly mind bending. I mean, I get up there and, you know, can I stop the ball near the cup from 30 feet? And so that skill isn't terribly different at its core from, can I get a wedge to stop inside of a reasonable distance from 90 yards? I'd like to think that on the range on track, man, a top tier player can be plus or minus, you know, three to four yards from 90 the vast majority of the time. Yeah. And it's it should be no different with putting. Ass, for some reason. Yeah, exa exactly. I mean, here, so I'm down in, I'm down in Florida with a player that I've um, starting to work with a bit more regularly. And he is kind of tinkering with the putter side of things, not really sure what direction he wants to go. And he's got uh, one of those, uh, odyssey stroke lab putters that looks like the tailor-made spider and he says he says boy i love the way this feels i feel like i never miss with it and i'm kind of wrinkling an eyebrow and don't really say much and i look over at his bag and i say hey see that golf bag there and he goes yeah i go how nice are those mirror blades and he goes oh man they're great i get such good feedback i know exactly what happens when i miss a little bit and if i need to just kind of make sure that i need to focus on this one part of my swing that i've been working with and I said, huh, so you get feedback from those, right? And he says, yeah. And I said, and you don't want that for your putter because, 
And he went, oh. And I said, what if I gave you cavity back irons? How would that go? And he goes, well, I'd hit everything really good, but if I was missing it, something would go wrong in my swing and I might not figure it out for a while. And I said, and then you might be too far gone to make a change of sorts or just put things back to where they were. Maybe you get off the rails for six, eight months because you don't have enough feedback for what the club's providing. And he went, wow, I would never want to do that with a putter. Immediately, about four of the putters that were sitting there next to the bag immediately went off the radar because it, they don't provide enough feedback. You know, it's got soft faces, perimeter weighting, high MOI, reducing feedback for where I hit it on the putter face. And not that a player can't figure it out, but if I continue to mute so many of those features with moving the CG back and adding weight to the putter, I'd probably run into some issues at some point. I'm not being held accountable the way I would like. So at what point do you start to put emphasis on putter fittings for players? Do you start off with that as a checkpoint or do you start to build that in as players get better with their strokes and, and the whole picture of what's taking place? You know, you know, Shaheen, it's tough to place. Uh, it's tough to pinpoint exactly where the putter comes into play. I'll say it's an influencer. Sometimes it's a problem to the point where the putter fit and the, and switching the putter, whether it be length, head shape, anything, any, any feature of the putter might be a little bit more important. Uh, sometimes it's a tool that just allows me to get better performance for some of the areas I need to tackle. Like uh, one player on the UCSB team that came to see me had a stroke that at first glance doesn't look terrible. And that's always kind of the un un unsettling part when you watch somebody hit the first two or three putts. This person's here with a problem. And at first glance, and go, well, it's not, not terrible. And then you start looking a little closer and you go, hmm, that's a little quirky. And then you look at the SAM data and see the issues with the face rotation and the lack of stability through the hitting area or post-impact. And you go, oh, yikes, that's a big issue. But it might have looked good because their dynamics were good. The putter's moving at a reasonable rate for size of stroke, tempo, and acceleration profile. And in, this, and in that particular case, it was, hey, we had to change the putter probably after the first hour or so. You know, probably needed just my time to collect my data and information, get to know the player a little bit, start working through some setup changes, and then just put a putter in his hand. It was an old ping that I had sitting around. It was the only 36-inch putter I had sitting around for this guy that's um, otherwise tall. And then it was, uh, we went from a mallet-type head to a blade head. And as soon as he hit the first one, he goes, wow, that was off the toe and then starts playing around with it, hitting a couple. And I said, well, let's hit a few heel side and figure out where middle is and work in some of the technique changes that allowed him to go, wow, I get some really good feedback here. This is night and day different. And to be able to prove to him too on the data side of things that you know, these changes that we made had tangible results. I think that's the hardest part as a coach, right? If you're doing this, you want to, I want to be held accountable for the information I'm giving my player, but it's the ultimate test, right? Like, did the data change? Did the performance change? Yeah, I like that. And to be honest, I think one of the most important things you said throughout that entire answer was the fact that it took you quite some time to form data first before giving any sort of strong opinion about something that you're maybe not 100% sure of because you don't have all the information yet, right? That's, a, that, sure, that's why I'm... A of... Yeah, go. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's time that goes into gathering that information you know somebody wants a one-hour lesson and the answer is absolutely not everybody starts off with the half-day session 
just to get things started because I need that amount of time to get to know somebody as a new client and to understand their environment and collect all the information or probably the first hour to hour 15 minutes just gathering information before I even start suggesting here's a plan, here's a thought, here's a recommendation on how and why things work. It's funny because one of the series is I just released on Course Kings, which for those of you who don't know, is a platform that both me and Preston are part of, a coaching platform on the internet. Uh, one of the things I kind of spoke about was the idea of like, even for full swings, get rid of these like 30 minute lessons. Like I don't, I still don't understand how a golf course can offer 30 minute lessons and have the player see any level of results. Cause just by the time I collect my data and even maybe not even have the time to explain it fully to the player, it's going to take me way more time than that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, if somebody wants to do it right, we're going to do it right. And there needs to be an understanding of concepts and stuff. And that's why we put out there, you know, just baseline resources for people to refer back to so that they're not hearing it for the very first time when they, when they walk in, you know, if they do their homework properly, they'll understand the putting priorities or read speed and direction. And they'll have some semblance of information about those, about those pieces. And that might at least get the wheels turning, or at least there are some concepts in place before they walk in that makes the time a little more effective. But if not, you know, I need to establish that concept first, you know, that's create, creating the concept because that'll be the foundation for how and why they're doing stuff. And it never ceases to amaze me that there's one bit of information or piece of data that I gather that's coming at like the very end of that first hour or so. And it kind of unlocks the entire picture here. One guy came down from Reno probably about two months ago and nothing, again, one of those scenarios where nothing at first glance looks too terrible you know, nothing that can't be fixed. And we're hitting some breaking putts and capturing the breaking putt data on Sam Putt Lab with the new ball tracker software. And the flat putts look fine. The right to lefters are tolerable. And then he steps up there. He's lining up left to righter and he gets over it. He backs off. He looks at it again. He starts fiddling with the line on it. Then he gets over it again. He steps off. He looks at me and he goes, oh, shit. <laughs> And that was one of those, oh, okay, cool. Here's the issue. This is probably why you're here. And it <laughs> was, um, and, he, and he's just looking and he has no idea what to do on it. And his strategy for left to right, because he supposedly misses all these putts low, was to pick a target farther up the hill. And for a putt that's otherwise got a foot or so of break, he's probably aiming about two and a half feet left of the cup, trying to get it to start up there. And there's no speed. You can't possibly hit it soft enough for that start line to break back towards the cup. So the first putty hits comes up about a foot and a half short from 10 feet. And I go, okay, got it. There's your issue. And That's then we start reestablishing the concept because he had barked up the wrong tree. He sees the putts missing low, so he assumes he has to hit it higher. And there we run into some issues, right? So, I mean, there's the ramifications. There's how bad it can go if you start looking in the wrong place for the answers. And therein lies the reason why a putting coach is as valuable as anything else in golf, because there's not many coaches out there who would have thought that way, like you just did there on that answer, or would have been able to even communicate that in a way that made super obvious sense about how they're changing their alignment and their putting speed because of where they miss a different type of putt. Like, that's crazy. I, I love that, honestly. You know, there was an Instagram post from a well-known coach that offered up a putting tip, and it was effectively the final message was, so you just get in there, rock your shoulders, and boom, 
and the last quip going off camera was, you don't need a putting coach. Whether or not he was joking remains to be seen, but I certainly am not going to sit back and tolerate that type of approach. Match up, you know, for somebody that otherwise approaches the value of matchups, said, okay, well, the same thing kind of exists in putting for how we move it, you know, whether it be a setup and a grip and a putter head combination, there's a matchup, right? For sure. So, I don't know. I, a backhanded comment like that, I don't appreciate. And I think that's, you know, as we get into the social media front, you know, there's an opportunity to positively impact the industry. Uh, you know, David, David Orr says it's hard to turn the Titanic around, but let's get started, right? Let's start putting out there information that's valuable and meaningful for a player, something that, re something that resonates and is actually good information. You know, don't, I'm not going to sit back and let somebody – you know, continue to promote that accelerating the putterhead is a good idea when it's one of the worst things you can do for speed. But it'll take time of me saying the same message over and over again, and it probably won't be my generation, but maybe a generation after me of coaches where it'll be at least the norm for how the putterhead speed works through the hitting area or how green reading works or how what a good putter fitting actually entails. So, so let's talk about social media then. Obviously, you um... – you know, I, I love it. Two two main points that we both kind of spoke about even prior to recording this was, you know, your public service announcements on Twitter, which always make me laugh because there's so much truth to them. But at the same time, it kind of is that like backhanded comment of saying like, you know, this is something that is said that you shouldn't be doing. Stop fucking listening to this, you know, or uh, or obviously you're putting stories that are kind of very similar to what I do with the full swing. But you do it on a on a on a scale towards geared towards putting, which um you know, obviously, if I follow suit, I, I obviously appreciate that, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's start. I mean, the public service announcement started with uh, started with I needed a, a general message or a general, general topic to open up with for, hey, everybody, listen here. So that seemed like a good idea. A PSA just was the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> it'll, it'll catch people's and attention real quick. Yeah, exactly. When you put something in all caps on Twitter, people tend to stop and read it. And then I started, started realizing that there's some traction here. So every time I see something on social media, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, a YouTube video, uh, read a tip in a magazine, and it's so far off base, there'll be a creative way to let somebody know that that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And I guess the ultimate victory is when I've posted some of those and then I post it and post it and post one where the person that it was might have been about actually goes back and likes the comment later and I go ah I've won one <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to overturn people's opinions on online too so that's a pretty damn good job yeah I mean, it, it, it happens it happens every now and again but at least it's a start it's a starting point we can start sharing sharing the information and what's about as much fun as i can poke without people taking offense to stuff even though we seem to take offense to more things than we should at this day and age but i just want it's an opportunity to send a message right and if you go back and you search the a whole series of the public service announcements i think there's there's probably a good 30 minute video in there just going through you know just the last half dozen of them do you, uh, was there one that stood out that you did that really caught a lot more attention than you were expecting? Uh, boy, one that caught more attention than I was expecting. There was the, the rocking the shoulders one, uh, seemed, and the shoulders, not a joint seemed to take hold pretty nicely. Uh, let's see. 
let me go back to my go back to my account here. See, man, there's some there's some really good ones. Let's see. I'm sure some are fire that are just catching heat, and someone that reads that is like, damn, really? Yeah, absolutely. Let's see. Oh, this one um, from back in early January. Your putter head shape does not dictate how much the face will rotate during the stroke. You're holding it. You do that. Stop the madness. <laughs> Basically, like the whole idea of like toe weighted versus face balance, and you got to do a straight back, straight through kind of concept. Yeah, exactly. So this idea that a face balance putter is supposed to move straight back, straight through, which is a load of crap in and of itself. Um, you know, this idea that a putter with less with less toe hang is going to rotate less. It might influence the player, but it doesn't dictate how they should move the putter. Right. It's going to be a long time for me saying that again and again and again to get the concept to the concept to change. But if somebody gets has a Wilson 8802 sitting around, an old heel shafted ton of toe hang putter, and tries to hang on tight to the grip and move the putter square to square, they could do it. And they could also take a high MOI mallet and just twist the face open and close throughout the stroke. And there you have it. The player dictates what's going to happen. Might the putter head influence how the, how the, how the putter feels, how the face rotates? Yeah, absolutely. But it's not going to say this is how it works. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's like people are almost telling you like the putter should dictate the stroke, which is so flawed. Correct. There's nothing, the player needs to start having, taking some responsibility for, I held the putter, I moved it, I created these results. I like that. And then um, I guess let's end on just those putting stories um, on Instagram. When did you start doing that? Obviously, they generate a ton of buzz. Do players get excited when you post about them or do they say, like, I would rather not be on it? Uh, I, I think now it's a rite of passage. If you come through the studio and you're up for a putting story, obviously, I always check with the player, but that's yeah. kind of one of those, it's, the media side of things is starting to take hold. And it's uh, one of those, wow, it's an honor to actually get on, get on the putting story. But that started when Instagram started releasing the story feature. And I saw people just posting random snapshots of what was going on throughout the day. And I thought about it. I said, it's an Instagram story. Let me tell the story of what happens inside the studio. And as, as things started to come together, I started getting a little bit better at storyboarding this and scripting out the order of the pieces and what from the session that I share for somebody. But it's nice for folks to be able to take a look inside of what happens here in, here in Santa Barbara and peek inside the studio and say, wow, that wasn't a normal putting lesson. That was, the approach was different and there was data and pictures and uh, use of video and technology. And ultimately the player seen something different happen. So give everybody a little bit of a breakdown then of where you are, if they can find you. Cause I know that you're a busy guy, but I'm sure that uh, there's a lot of great players out there who need help on their putting. And obviously you're a prime advocate based on all the knowledge you have. Right. Uh, my location is at Don Parsons golf in Santa Barbara. And the easiest way to find me on social media is uh, at Preston's putting or to get to know me a little bit better. You can also check out, my uh, website at www.prestonsputting.com. Uh, quick shout out to uh, Don Parsons because when I moved out here from New Jersey four years ago, I knew I had a lot of inf uh, information on the coaching side and just not with the job opportunity to share that information and be in, a, be in an environment where 
forward thinking and challenging thoughts and processes was encouraged. And when Don took me under his wing four years ago, that's likely the one thing that kept me in the golf industry. Uh, no, actually, that is the one thing that kept me in the golf industry at that point, because I was uh, like any 20, late 20 something year old coach. I was pretty frustrated with feeling like I had something and no place to, no place to share it. Uh, I owe the world to him for giving me the roof and the opportunity to uh, house, house the technology and continue to share the knowledge that I've accumulated over the years and help positively impact somebody's li livelihood, their career. I mean, that's what we do at the highest level of coaching. Some 22-year-old that's a good college player says, I need to take the next step. I have an obligation to share the information with them that helps them take that next step. The information that I didn't get in college because there weren't the right coaches and people in that environment, you know, they were still wrapped up in the PJ teaching manual and trying to figure out ball flight laws still. There's no, there's no reason for that. There's no excuse for that anymore. For sure. I mean, with the amount of information that's accessible to people who want to learn about the golf swing, I think there's no more excuse to say that everybody has to follow this guideline of some outdated manual. Right. And I think it's now our job as coaches to make sure that the good information is out there and it's prominent. The social media front matters as far as, you know, I've got good information and letting the world know that if you want that information, come here. And if you can't make it here, we'll do an online coaching session. And if you feel like you need to see somebody in person, there's an available network of us and I'll recommend you to whoever's in the area that would make the most sense to go to. Love it, dude. Um, man, one of the smartest guys I know in putting, I honestly uh, can't speak highly enough of you. I'm sure there's a lot of guys who will hopefully will uh, seek out your counsel after this because you deserve it. So uh, I appreciate you coming on, man. Thank you, Shane. Great to, great to catch up and spend, spend a little time out here. If you ever feel like getting out of the snow, you know where Santa Barbara is. <laughs> I'll be sure you'll be the first one to know. Trust me. There you go. Love the sound of it. All right, buddy. Have a good day today, dude. Thank you. You too. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode with Preston. Definitely left us um, a lot of stuff to think about. As always, be sure to check us out on social media. We're going to be doing a ton of giveaways this year. We got some big projects in the works. Uh, we're going to be releasing some video content through our Skillist platform that is set to come out in the next couple of weeks. Um, you can find us on social media under Nakjavani Golf, which is our academy here in Montreal. Or you can find me on my own personal handle, which is Shkeen Golf, S-H-K-E-E-N Golf. That's where I do a lot of work and post um, the things I'm doing with my students. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned for that. Giveaways are going to be cool. New guests coming on are going to be cool. We're trying to get a wide range of people onto the show. Um, so you guys are going to really like these ones.